page 1198, 1199, Titus. And we're really thinking of chapter 3, verses 9 and following, but we're going to read from uh, the very first verse. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at His appointed season, He brought His Word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of our God, our Savior, to Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Now, in the remainder of chapter 1, Paul writes to Titus, tells him to appoint elders, tells, us, tells him what those elders should be like, and then points out that there are many who are opposed to the gospel in verses 10 to 16. Then he tells Titus in chapter 2, verse 1, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. And then he goes on to speak about older women and younger women and young men, and then picks up in verse 9 of chapter 2 with slaves. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. <clears throat> For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our, God and, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way, and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good, in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. 
Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. We trust that God will bless this wonderful letter of Titus to our hearts tonight. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to those two pages, 1198 and 1199. There are not that many places in the Bible that you can do an overview of an entire book and have the entire book just sitting open in front of you. And uh, this is one of those places in which you can do that. And uh, we're going to be jumping all over the, the, the letter in a sense tonight, but, but it's all on two pages, so it should be easy enough for us. Really, what we, we should be doing is just looking at those few closing remarks that uh, Paul gives to his young apprentice, Titus, this young man that he has left on this island of Crete in order to finish that which needed to be completed, particularly the appointing of leaders and so on within the congregation, or within the congregations perhaps. And um, a, what he does is, at the end, is he, he, he draws together a number of sort of themes that, that actually are sort of closing remarks, but are also big themes that are in the whole letter. You know, you sometimes want to get the last word in a conversation, and, and, and you really want to emphasize the big things that you've been saying. And Paul does that as he does that with, with Titus. Now, what we want to do is, is to look, therefore, at some of the big themes that are in this letter tonight, and, and particularly to look at them, in a sense, through the lens of the gospel, because we looked last time at that definition of the gospel in chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. He saved us. Uh, perhaps a, a statement that, that was memorized by some of the early Christians, we thought. But, but the gospel is not confined just to a, a few verses in Titus. It, it, it's woven all the way through it. It pops up here and there very, very clearly, but it's woven all the way through it, either in explicitly stating what the gospel is or in giving us some of the implications of the gospel. In fact, really, the whole letter is about the implications of the gospel. How should we live in the light of the fact that God has done this? How should we live? That, that's a big question for all of us, and uh, that's what we're going to do uh, this evening, try and trace some of the gospel themes through this letter. Four things, simply to say. I don't have any PowerPoint tonight. We're going to be keeping our nose in the text, hopefully. Um, or maybe our nose on our chest if we've been sleeping uh, a wee bit if we've been away at the weekend. No excuse for anybody else. Uh, we'll call out names of anybody who hasn't been on the weekend who falls asleep, but if you have been on the weekend, we'll just take pictures of you and uh, put you on Facebook. So, first of all, the gospel is highlighted. The gospel is highlighted because we've said the gospel is drawn attention to within this letter. Now, sometimes we, we don't define the gospel, we talk about it, but, but at its essence, now there's not one definition of, it, of the gospel, but at its essence, when, when Christians refer to the gospel, we are talking about the good news that Jesus has died to pay the penalty for our sin so that we might become children of God through faith in Christ. So, so you remember uh, Paul's great description of what happens in the gospel in Corinthians. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That sort of heart of the gospel, Jesus doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And it's like, as we've said before, a many-faceted jewel that, that defies only one explanation, 
but there are some particular elements of it that we want to draw attention to within this letter. So, for example, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for Himself a people that are His very own. Now, now one of the things we need to see about the gospel is that it is something outside of ourselves. It, it, It is not to be found within us or within our own abilities, within our own uh, capabilities, or our own achievements. As we saw in chapter 3, verse 5 last week, it says, He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. So, he's very much saying, look, the good news, yes, it touches down in your life. It intersects with your life. But it's not, first of all, about you. It's about something outside of you that God has done. It's Jesus doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. When Paul introduces his letters, when he opens his letters, you'll find that very often he, his greetings set out some of the themes that he then goes on to unpack, and that's true here. In the opening verses, we're introduced to the saving work of God planned before the beginning of time and now made known. So, for example, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, uh, verse 2, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. And at His appointed season, He brought His Word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. So, the good news of the gospel, which which involves the hope of eternal life. So, the, God is not, uh, the gospel is not just that, that God's going to do some good stuff for you now. He's not just going to save you now. He's preparing you to be with Him forever. We've really got to get that long-term view. Uh, but what we see here is that this gospel hope that we have is not a plan B in God's mind. Do you notice that? It's promised before the beginning of time. Isn't that interesting? It's not just planned before the beginning of time. It's promised before the beginning of time. To whom did God promise the gospel before the beginning of time? Who was there to hear God's promise? Only God Himself. God promised the gospel to Himself. God's plan is to give His people eternal life through the work of His Son, and it is revealed through the preaching of Paul. Paul is a great gospel expositor. He brings it to light. But but God has promised the gospel from before the beginning of time. It was this gospel message that had built this church that called people to Christ. It's a, a people that God is forming, You see, chapter 2, verse 14, he's purifying a people. So, it's never just about you or about me. It's not just about Jesus and you. It's about Jesus and his people, his people into which you have been incorporated if you're a Christian. Now, as we've said, our, our dealings with the gospel don't end with our conversion. 
And that's evidenced by the fact that, that Paul does weave this gospel right through this letter so that we would continue to be reminded of it and its implications. So, so Paul is, is urging Timothy to take the people in Crete deeper into this gospel, this gospel that God had planned from before the beginning of time, had, had promised before the beginning of time. Take them deeper into it, explore its depths, work it out in all their areas of their lives. It's one of the frustrations we have with the church, isn't it? That it, that it lets us down, that, that Christians are not what they should be, that, that when they are pressed, we react rather like the world does sometimes. And you see, the answer to that is, is not rules. Paul, Paul knew that, that, that these Christians in Crete were not always the best example. They were sometimes very like the culture, which wasn't a godly culture. But the answer to that is not lots of rules to say, you've got to do this and this and this and this. The answer is really to go deeper into the gospel and to, to spell out its implications and to live out its implications. You see, this is to be, as God's people, the gospel is to be our great study. Give yourself to learning what God has done for you and see how it changes everything. So, you see, the gospel is, is highlighted right through this book. It just pops up. It's like a, a thread that's woven through it, and it pops up in places. It's on the surface. In other places, it's down behind the fabric, but it's, it's supporting everything that goes on. The gospel's highlighted. The gospel, the second thing to say is the gospel defines what's right. And what we're really saying here is that if the gospel is right, then everything that's not the gospel is not right. You'll notice that those closing verses include some rather harsh directions. So, this is chapter 3, verse 9. Avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because they are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful, self-condemned. So, Paul is telling Titus that there is a time to expel or excommunicate somebody from the church. That, by the way, implies that there is a list of those who are in the church, and that implies that there's such a thing as church membership, okay? So, there's part of our justification for saying it's a good thing to be part of a member of a church. Now, the particular issue here is divisiveness. You know the sort of person walks into a room and sort of marmite, love them or hate them. They say things that they're really get everybody going. Well, it's not just that sort of divisiveness. It's not about whether people would disagree what sort of color to, to paint the front of the church and so on. They didn't have that. This is the divisiveness of people who are spreading false doctrine and engaging in all sorts of useless arguments, but because they weren't holding on to the truth. And Titus, right through this letter, is, is, Titus, it's, it's full of warnings about false teachers that had infiltrated the church. He, Titus doesn't pull his, or Paul doesn't pull his punches, chapter 1, verse 11. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. 
Chapter 1, verse 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. So you see, the, the whole context here is not just anything goes. What, what Paul is saying is, listen, if the gospel is true, then anything that is against the gospel or short of the gospel is not true. If there's a message about what God has done, sometimes called sound doctrine, then it means that if anything falls short or contradicts that, it's just not sound doctrine. It's not true. And it doesn't work. It deceives people. It ruins households. And we really need to nail this issue of truth within our minds because we live in a world, and especially you guys who are younger, you're going into a context where, where people think about faith and religion as something that's true for you or nice for you, but not true in the sense of true truth. 2014, there was a man called James McCormick, and he was jailed for selling fake bomb detectors. Some of you might remember this story. Many of them went to Iraq. He imported, this is what he did, he imported golf ball detectors, didn't even know there was such a thing, golf ball detectors from America, 13 pounds they cost him. He packaged them, sold them to contractors, military people, to people who had security issues in Iraq for 27,000 pounds each. This will detect a bomb under your car. This will detect an IED. It's a golf ball detector. Can you imagine people putting their lives on the line like that with something that was entirely untrustworthy? You see, truth then really matters. If you've got this thing in your hand and you think it's going to detect a bomb and it's only looking for golf balls, it really matters, doesn't it? doesn't matter if it's true for you. doesn't matter if, if you feel that it's doing a good job. It's not worth pinning your life on. Friends, the gospel is that sort of truth. It's either true or it's untrue. It's either worth pinning your life on or it's worth running away from. It's not like going into an art gallery, you know, people say, well, how does that picture make you feel? You're asked to describe your reactions. It's not that sort of truth. There are things that are true and not true. And so you see, the truth of the gospel inevitably divides. It rules things in and it rules things out. And this is one of those places where we're just going to rub up against our culture where it says there's no such thing as truth when it comes to faith. It's just all opinion. It's like the art gallery. It's not like the art gallery. It's like the bomb detector. Third thing, the gospel brings holiness the church in Crete was, was affected by a couple of ways of false teaching. and uh, uh, There was both legalism, it seems, within this church fellowship, and there was license. These are the two classic 
enemies of Christian living right through Christian history, legalism and license. I often think of it like some of you I know have, have walked a striding edge in, in the Lake District. I think it's around Helvellyn, isn't it? Isn't that right? And, and, and you, you, you walk along this edge. I've never done it. I've just seen the postcards. And, and, and uh, there, there's a great sort of great big chasm down into a, a lake on one side and a great chasm down the other. So you're just walking along this little narrow ridge. You can fall off either way. It's very exciting. And, and, uh, and this is like the gospel. You know, there, there's a great chasm on either side of the gospel. One is, is legalism and one is license. Legalism sounds quite good. We, we like legalism in Northern Ireland, or at least we used to. It seeks to stress our behavior. It's very upright. But underneath it all, it's seeking to earn God's favor. I will do this, God. You will respond to me. And that was the fault of the circumcision party in Crete that's referred to in chapter 1, verse 10. God responds to our efforts. God helps those who help themselves. It seeks to earn God's grace. That's legalism. The other problem is license. And that seeks to take advantage of God's grace. It's, it's, it's rule-free. It's self-indulgent living. It says, God has done everything. Now you can do what you want. I'll just sin. God will sort it out afterwards. Now, those two things look very, very different on the ground. But they've got a, a, a core root. They've got a core root in the flesh and human effort in the self because the person who's into license, indulgence themselves, they indulge the flesh. They say, if it feels good, do it. Go for it. You deserve it. But the legalist, they don't indulge the flesh. They trust in the flesh. They trust in themselves. They think that by their own efforts, they can control God. And you see, the gospel has the answer to both, because for the legalist, the gospel brings a real relationship with God. We have His approval. It's not based on what we do, but on what He has done. And so, we can end the striving because we have the approval of the maker of the universe. It can't be taken from us. And the gospel answers the licentious person too, because what is it that gives us real joy and real freedom and real satisfaction? The person who follows their own desires are, always ends up empty and enslaved. The world never delivers what it promises, but the gospel really does deliver. It provides what the world cannot, solid joys and lasting treasures none but Zion's children know. Now, boy, that, you, know, you know, that's an old hymn. They're lying from an old hymn, and every generation ought to know it. Solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. In other words, if you want to know real joy, you've got to know the Lord. He's the one who provides solid joy. Now, because the gospel is able to affect the, the heart, it's able to bring change. All real behavioral change has to come from the heart if it's going to last. The heart is the wellspring of life. And so, to live God's way, we need to be driven by a heart that has encountered God. An external solution will not do for this internal heart problem that we have. But you see, Paul here claims big things for the gospel in terms of change. Chapter 2, verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. You see, here's the result that we're looking for, isn't it? Self-controlled, upright, and godly life. If you're a Christian, you know that you want that. How does that happen? Well, Paul says the grace of God teaches us that. Now, this is not just information transfer. This is teaching a little bit more like braces on your teeth, how braces teach your teeth to be in a certain place within your gub, all right? Is that a word that anybody uses now? Used to use that when we were growing up. They constrain you. It constrains what's going on. No to worldly passions, yes to godly lives. It's as the heart is taught by the grace of God, touched and melted and constrained by the grace of God. It's what God has done for us. So, here's what one writer says. The gospel produces such loving and longing for our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we desire to honor Him with our lives. When that love and longing are present, godly behavior follows. You can't get godly behavior without a love for the Lord, and it is the gospel that produces that. And that's what we so often miss. We, we think the answer to our, our progress lies in discipline and in programs, and, and those things are important. Let's be sure about that. But it is, first of all, a matter of the heart. The power of the heart is so important. It was Augustine who said, love God and do whatever you please, for the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. You see, if you love God, obedience to Him is so much more straightforward. And this is how the gospel impacts us. It changes our status and our destiny. Of course, it does that. But it melts our hearts. And, and that's what changes us. You see, if you're trying to, to live a, a holy life, but at the back of your head, you've got the notion that God's a monster, you really won't get very far. won't take you very far. So, if you want to grow in holiness, you think long and hard and deep about what God has done for you in Christ. You think of your need. You think of how lost you would have been without Him. You think of the fact that, that you don't do anything to bring Him to you. He comes to you. Think of the, the perfect righteousness that you have in God's eyes because of the gospel. Think of the future that lies ahead of you in glory. Think of the, the gospel and see if your heart does not become softer and swifter to do His will. If you don't start to, to cry out with C.T. Studd, if Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice I can make for Him is too great. You see? The gospel brings holiness. And then the last thing, in a word, the gospel brings fruitfulness. It's one of the chief emphases of Paul in this letter. He begins by saying in the first couple of verses, um, a servant of God, Paul, a servant of God, and the apostle of Christ. Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. The knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Right at the end, chapter 3, verse 14, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Learn to do what is good, you see. Practical outworkings, doing good, bearing fruit. The thought of an unproductive life for a believer, in Paul's eyes, is sort of inconceivable. How could that possibly be? 
And yet, he knows it can be because he warns us against it. In, his, in that great gospel summary, Paul makes it clear that this was why Jesus redeemed us. Chapter three, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus, who, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Brother, sister, are you eager to do what is good? Do you find yourself eager for good works? Aren't we still remarkably self-centered when we think about the gospel? We think of in terms of what Jesus has done for me. I'm not going to hell anymore. I've got peace of mind. But He has redeemed us in order that we might be eager to do what is good. And we can't really pick one part of this verse and say, that's great, He's redeemed me, and forget the other part. He wants me to be eager to do what is good. Jesus did not die with the purpose of having a half-hearted people, but an eager people. And this, of course, as we've seen, is part of His strategy for His witness to the world. It's very much in mind within this letter. The world is becoming a difficult place for these believers. The Christians are not thought of as neutral or, or, or good. They're actually beginning to be thought of as bad, a threat. They're subversive. That's the sort of world that you are going to step out into this week. And Paul sees the lives of the believers as a great tool in the box when it comes to addressing that situation. So, the behavior of the wives, chapter 2, verse 5, is so that no one will malign the Word of God. The behavior of the slaves is so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. They will adorn the gospel. I think it was R.C. Sproul who said, Christ doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And part of why your neighbor and my neighbor needs them is so that their prejudices about Christianity and about Christians might be undermined, so that they'll be open to the gospel. So many things that we could pick up from this book. But that's really us tonight. It, Paul, through Titus, wants us to live the good life, a life that overflows in good things towards our brothers and sisters and out into the world. And to do that, the gospel has got to grip our hearts. Teach us to say no to ungodliness and yes to going His way. Has it got a grip of you? Let's pray that it will. Let's pray together. Lord, sometimes we confess that we think the good life is somewhere other than this. We think it's about indulging ourselves or cleaning ourselves up. Help us, Lord, to go deep with the gospel, that our hearts might be changed, that our hearts might be turned towards you, that our actions might be changed, that we might be eager to do what is good. 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.